Good morning, everyone, and welcome to WCCS Wheaton College Radio. I'm Adam Bass. Last week, we interviewed Benjamin Siegel, a candidate running in the Democratic primary for the 4th Congressional District of Massachusetts. This seat, once held by Barney Frank and Joe Kennedy, the third is now vacant, as Congressman Kennedy now seeks Ed Markey's position in the Senate. Today, we have another candidate who has graciously come on to be interviewed on WCCS, former member of the Brookline Select Board and former communications director for Governor Deval Patrick, Ms. Jesse Mermel. Uh, Merme- uh, Jesse, welcome to WCCS. Adam, thanks so much for having me. I appreciate it. I'm glad. So let's start off with the, with the most important question. How are you doing today? It's very oh, important. You're kind to ask. That's what we're all asking each other and finally meaning it, right? Finally actually wanting to know the answer. No, I, I'm doing fine. Roof over my head, food on the table, uh, and that's what's important. How about you? How are you and your family doing? Oh, very busy, very busy around here, cleaning up the house and trying to find new things to do, such as uh, reaching out to Massachusetts politicians and see how they function in the Great Bay State. Excellent. Happy to provide an activity. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you very much. So to begin with, Jesse, you have probably one of the most extensive and detailed work history within the sphere of the public eye in this entire race. Uh, ranging from service in a former governor's administration, being part of a select board, and being part of several groups, including being the vice president of external affairs at Planned Parenthood in Massachusetts. It seems to me that you place experience as a high factor in qualifications to become the next representative of Massachusetts Fourth. Is that the highest value that you, that you have, or is there more than just experience? You know, Adam, experience matters, but it's not just experience for the sake of being able to have a long resume, right? It's what you're doing with that experience and why you're doing it. Um, you know, for me, that experience isn't just titles that you can rattle off. It's, it's work that I've done fighting to make sure that we have a fair economy for everyone. As the president of the Alliance for Business Leadership to pass paid family and medical leave, to pass equal pay, to raise revenue from the most fortunate among us to invest in transportation and education, to fight for health care that actually works for everyone, that we can all afford and access, right? It's fighting as a member of the select board to tackle climate change at the local level. At Planned Parenthood, it's fighting for reproductive health care that everyone can access and afford. And we can go on down the list. And you know, the reason that I have this experience, the reason that I've been driven to do this work is because I grew up in a small town in rural Pennsylvania. Um, It's the town of 5,000 people, biggest town in the county. I grew up across from a cornfield and next to a dairy farm. And I'm from a place where opportunity was quite frankly a foreign concept, right? When I was a kid, dairy and coal industries that once fueled our local economy were long dead. There was still a paper uh, plant at the end of Main Street that was providing a good number. It lost a shift and it lost another shift. And by the time I was in high school, it was closed. And my dad ran a small business a few blocks off of Main Street. And I saw exactly what happens when opportunity packs up and leaves town and nobody's looking in the rearview mirror to see how anybody's doing. And so, yes, I have a lot of experience, but more importantly than the fact that I can put together a long resume is that that experience has yielded real results tackling economic inequality and social mobility here in Massachusetts. And it's driven by a fire that I've had in my belly since childhood for creating economic opportunity for people because I've seen firsthand how hard it is when that isn't your reality. Well, speaking of um, economic opportunity, and this is one of the questions that actually came up, uh, not written down because it just came out in the news, 
Uh, Massachusetts Governor Charlie Baker has just released a new phase plan to reopen the state and has received several backlash from not only members of your party, the Democratic Party, but also the Republican Party. Some say it is too slow. Some say it is too fast. And I want your take on it. What is your uh, view on the governor's reopening plan? Uh, should it go faster? Should it go slower? Should it even happen at all? This is too much and too fast. Um, and it's done in a way that's left too many voices not at the table. Listen, I've spent the past five years running a business organization. I am as anxious as anybody for things to reopen, both on a very personal level, right? Because we're all going a little stir crazy. Um, and I need a haircut as badly as anybody <laughs> does. But also because I worked hand in hand with top business executives and CEOs for the past five years, I, I know that they're hurting, particularly small business owners and are anxious to get out there. But if we aren't putting public health first, then in the long run, we are doing more damage to our economy than anything. We have a moral responsibility to put public health first. Listen, what we're doing in Massachusetts, uh, I'm, I'm very nervous about. You know, I'm nervous that we've come up with a plan that didn't involve any labor seats at the table. I'm nervous that we've come up with a plan that didn't involve any frontline caretakers with a seat at the table. Can you imagine figuring out whether or not it's safe to reopen Massachusetts and not have nurses on the committee, the nurses who see firsthand every day what's happening with this virus? I mean, there are some things that we are really missing the boat on. We don't have a good plan for what it means for PPE for workers. We don't have a good plan for childcare. And just this morning, the Boston Globe reported that women have been disproportionately impacted by job loss and economic loss in this economy. And so wouldn't you think that we'd be centering a plan for childcare as we think about how we reopen the economy and put people back to work? I, I'm as anxious as anybody ready to get back out there, but not at the expense of lives, not at the expense of public health. And I'm very, very nervous that that's what we're doing here. Uh, yeah, it's a very, very stressful situation for all citizens, left and right of the spectrum in political sense. So one of the biggest uh, issues that Democratic voters have, aside from healthcare, is climate change. Um, and when I asked Ben Siegel about this, uh, he acknowledged that in order to have a Green New Deal, it is important that we do it in a way that doesn't act as one fell swoop, but focuses also on a transition to a green economy. As someone who was a past business owner yourself, um, do you believe that there is a, a, a way to transition to this green economy, as Ben Siegel says? And if so, what does it look like? Sure. To, to clarify, I, I was not a business owner. I was the president of a, a progressive business association. Ah. Um, but it, it's a great question. And I would argue we're already making that transition and have been in Massachusetts for a long time. In the Patrick administration, we created a clean energy economy in Massachusetts almost out of full cloth because we made strategic investments in helping that industry grow. And now there are over 100,000 clean energy jobs in Massachusetts. I would argue that we have long been the test case for something like the Green New Deal for making this transition. Listen, there is no question that there are jobs that are tied up in the old ways of fueling our economy. It is very, very important that we have a just transition to make sure that those workers are continued to be supported and protected and have a way to support their families. But I know that the only way that we can come out of this crisis, the only way that we can chart a path forward that is finally equitable, just, and inclusive is if we're investing 
in our green new in our green economy if we are pursuing a green new deal and think about the southern part of the fourth congressional district you know all the way down to fall river and taunton and attleboro off of the south coast of massachusetts we have one of the biggest opportunities in the entire country to create revenue and clean energy from offshore wind off of the coast of massachusetts and rhode island you have some of the biggest opportunity for offshore wind that you could ever find and other states are clamoring to lead in this industry we have the opportunity to both create that growth create those jobs here in massachusetts and tackle our climate crisis but that means we have to make sure that we're attaching those jobs to project labor agreements and that we're investing in the infrastructure in the building of the infrastructure that we need to transition from a fossil fuel economy to a clean economy so yes there needs to be a transition but i think it's a false narrative to say that we have to start one it's just that we have to accelerate the transition that we're already in the midst of and and to go off of that what sort of steps would you take to accelerate that process I would continue to invest in clean energy. I would invest in the infrastructure that's necessary to transition to a clean energy economy. Storage, for one, there are lots of questions about how we store the clean energy that we generate. There's no question um, that we need to solve that problem. Same thing around transmission. How are we transmitting the energy after we've captured it and stored it? So those are the type of investments that we're going to need to make, but investments that create jobs, investments that create economic growth, and help us tackle our climate crisis as we make this transition or continue this transition that we're already in the midst of. Mm, I see. So let's talk about the election for a minute. Um, for one, you are one of many women candidates running for this position. Um, the Massachusetts 4th District has never had a woman representing it. Um, this is a rather progressive part of the state, a very diverse part of the state. So if there were to be a Congressman Murmel, um, what would that look like and what sort of impact would that have on many young or older women wanting to participate in politics? Oh, goodness. I mean, we see every time a woman runs for any office, right? Anytime a woman puts herself out there, it moves the needle when it comes to women's representation because it means that there's some other woman out there, some other girl out there who maybe for the first time is seeing themselves as a potential leader. And, and I say that from incredible personal experience. You know, when I was a kid, I was a little bit of a civic nerd, right? I was kind of interested in this stuff. Uh, no one in my family is political. We're, no one else in my family has run for office. They are not sure, you know, what turnip truck I fell off of. But my grandmother, who, you know, was born in 1908, Adam, she was born a decade plus before women had the right to vote. For some reason, I don't know why, she took me really seriously when I started to be interested in, you know, reading the paper and watching the news. I was plotting some political career. I was just curious about what was happening in the world. And she lived in Middletown, New York, a, a small, you know, city in upstate-ish York. And the mayor of her city in the early 90s happened to be a woman named Gertrude Mokotov. And my grandmother, you know, knew her reasonably well, they lived down the street, and she went and asked her if I could spend a day with her, just shadowing her in City Hall and seeing what it was like to be a mayor. And it blew my mind. I mean, just blew my mind. Being able to watch Gertrude Mokotov, a woman, sit at the head of the table and be the one to help solve the problems, to be the one helping to make people's lives better and making these decisions 
You know, when I grew up, you turned on the TV and you saw Tip O'Neill and Ronald Reagan and Dick Gephardt, and it, it never really occurred to me that it could be a woman in those roles. And to see Gertrude Mokotov with my own eyes, it's not like that was the moment where I decided I was going to run for office. And so you ask what it would mean, you know, for women and girls in the fourth congressional district to see themselves represented by a woman. I think it means changing the narrative about what's possible. And then even beyond that, it means having a woman in office, if it, I'm fortunate enough for it to be me, um, who spent 20 years fighting for women and families, you know, who spent 20 years working to make the lives of women better, whether it's at Planned Parenthood, fighting for paid leave, fighting for equal pay, fighting to raise the minimum wage, which we know disproportionately benefits women, you know, so many things that we know are crucial to rebuilding this economy where, as I mentioned, women have been disproportionately impacted by our crumbling economy right now. Um, I think what the voters in this district, who are overwhelmingly women, are going to see with a Congresswoman Murmel is someone who, yes, looks like them, who, yes, they can relate to, but who's going to take the 20 years of muscle that I built for women and working families and go to Washington to further that work and rebuild this economy in a way that actually works for women and their families. A lot of people within the election world are interested yet concerned about raising enthusiasm to vote and participate to participate in elections during a global crisis. In a recent Emerson poll, only about 51% of Massachusetts voters are willing to get out and vote in September and November, while 49% do not want to take such a health risk. Running a campaign during a global pandemic is hard enough with voters afraid to go and vote without proper safety precautions to do so. It becomes more challenging. Uh, so how would you plan to tackle this issue if you become the nominee, and what sorts of ways can, you, can people exercise their democracy without being frightened of getting sick? Yeah, I think if I'm waiting till I'm in Congress, I've waited too long, right? And, and we've been vocal on this issue right now. Um, whoever's in this seat cannot wait till January to speak out for safe and fair elections. And let's be clear, even without the public health crisis that we're in because of COVID-19, we needed to tackle how we make our elections safe and fair and inclusive. You know, ever since the Supreme Court uh, took a sledgehammer to the Voting Rights Act in 2013, we have seen how challenging it is for people, particularly people of color, to vote in this country. And we know that that is an intentional act by Republicans who are looking to suppress votes in those communities. But if we look at the public health crisis that we're facing right now, there's no question that we need to have vote by mail. There's no question that we need to have vote by mail where those ballots are automatically sent to every single voter. We've been vocally calling for that for weeks now. Um, and there's no question that we need to strengthen the safety precautions that exist for in-person voting because some people will still choose to take that path. And I mean that for voters, but also for workers. Think about poll workers. Think about the volunteers who are at the polls all day. They should not be asked to risk their lives, to risk their families' lives, just because they want to serve our civic process. So I think that people who want to engage in this process, who want to make their right voices heard, should contact the Massachusetts legislature right now. The Senate literally debated this week, or maybe it was late last week, all the days blur together at this point, but just debated uh, the issue of vote by mail. There are multiple proposals in the State House right now. So if this is something you care about, literally the State House switchboard number is 617-722-2000. Call and ask. 
to talk to your state representative or your state senator, call the governor's office, call Secretary Gallman's office, and let them know this is important to you. We should not ask a single voter to risk their health, the health of their family, and the public just to participate in the democratic process. And if anyone running for this seat is waiting until January to weigh in, then they aren't taking the issue seriously. Incredible. So to go off of um, back to uh, Governor Baker for a second, um, as I said, a lot of Republicans within his own party have been very vocally angry about him. Uh, the, the head of the GOP in Massachusetts has said that this is uh, equivalent of tyranny. Now, Gov now uh, Attorney General Maura Healy has come to Baker's defense and said, you know, she not, doesn't approve of the plan, all of it, but certainly enough to defend Governor Baker. Uh, two questions on that. A, are you work, willing to work across the aisle with your Republican colleagues? And B, is there any sort of defense that you could have for the governor uh, for any of his work during this pandemic? Yes and yes, I'm absolutely work, willing to work with people with whom I disagree. Um, you know, I talked about paid family medical leave, the eight person that the legislature asked to come to the table to negotiate that compromise. We had incredible differences of opinion on day one, but over the course of seven months, we're able to come together and present a compromise that uh, wasn't just a compromise for compromise sake, it presented a nation leading paid family and medical leave law that you know lifted up working families and helped tackle inequality. So it's not just something that I'm willing to do, it's something that I have done. And, and yes, I, I think that the governor has, you know, stood up not as much as I would like. I agree with Moore Healy. There are things that are missing here. I don't agree with his timeline for reopening, but I appreciate that he has received strong criticism from the far right in his party um, who think that, you know, things should not have been shut down. Things should have been reopened. who are upset about having to wear masks. Um, and I very much appreciate um, that he has held steadfast on those things um, and will have no problem praising him for doing so. You know, masks and many other things we know are absolutely essential as we try to protect our neighbors. You know, we're a commonwealth, right? We're not a state, we're a commonwealth. And it's because we were founded on the concept that our faiths are intertwined and it would serve us all well to remember that right now and uh, I, I do think that uh, in some ways the governor uh, has been putting that first. It uh, doesn't mean there aren't areas where I disagree with him but I certainly am willing to, uh, to praise him when it's warranted. On a national level um, we obviously understand the, the presumptive nominee for uh, vice pre or president, he was a vice president, uh, Joe Biden. Um, now, Joe Biden is obviously focusing on states such as Michigan, Wisconsin, Arizona, states that he is probably going to need to hold his weight in order to defeat Donald Trump if he wants to. Um, obviously, there's not going to be pay much paid attention to this Commonwealth, Massachusetts. Do you think that Joe Biden is missing an opportunity by at least uh, maybe glancing over it and taking the state for granted? And if, and if not, what could he do to reach out to Massachusetts voters and get them excited? Listen, the, the real question is, do we need to do away with the Electoral College? And the answer is yes, yeah. right? Uh, until we do that, this is um, the Electoral College, you know, puts hands in the power of very, very few. Things have changed dramatically since the concept you know, was originated and we need to make changes. We need to, to move away from the Electoral College. 
you know, there's no question that, that, that Joe Biden will be focused here to, to raise money, to encourage volunteers to go to New Hampshire, to Pennsylvania, probably virtually this fall, right? Uh, you aren't going to see those, uh, those caravans of college students heading up to New Hampshire to volunteer the way you like uh, in a normal year. But um, it's not that he won't focus on Massachusetts. It's that it'll be for volunteers and it'll be for financial support. And while those things are important, it is a flawed system that creates that dynamic. And so we have to change the system if we're really gonna be serious about making sure that Massachusetts gets the attention that it deserves in uh, you know, our votes being courted and our, our voices being valued by presidential candidates. Indeed, this is a crucial state. Uh, so going back to uh, policy for a minute here, uh, constituents of Massachusetts for believe in the importance of education and that strengthening it is an utmost priority for many families. However, many students, including it, uh, my friends at Wheaton College, are facing a growing debt crisis that is only being magnified be by the effects of the virus. So how does Congresswoman uh, Rommel tackle the issue of education, something that Americans should have the ability to easily access? So listen, we've got $1.5 trillion in college debt facing people in this country. It is holding people back, and it is holding the country back. And as you mentioned, Adam, that is exponentially more true now in the face of this. When it comes to debt, you know, I think we need to use every tool in our toolkit to help tackle the debt issue. That includes debt relief. That includes uh, uh, making sure that we are making it easy for people to refinance. That includes oversight uh, of interest rates. Uh, and it includes making sure that if someone does choose to go to a, a private institution, uh, that FAFSA and other forms of financial aid are affordable. I do support uh, free college tuition for public uh, public uh, colleges and universities, both two and four year schools, community colleges, and uh, um, uh, technical schools. Sorry, my my mind froze there for a second. Um, and I think that we need to tackle uh, and roll back the incredible harm that Betsy DeVos has done around allowing for profit universities to prey on some of the most vulnerable students in our communities who are simply trying to get an education and advance themselves and instead saddled with horrific debt and in exchange have earned a degree uh, that does not have the value they were promised. But you know, beyond higher education, Adam, I think that we need to make sure we're also focusing on early ed and K through 12. We need to invest in early education and care. That was true before this crisis. But as we discussed earlier, it will be impossible to truly reopen this economy if we don't tackle the child care shortcomings that we have in this country, particularly when you look at the importance of women in the workplace. Yeah, when, oh, go on. When you look at our struggling K through 12 systems, when you look at the ways in which municipalities, cities, and towns are struggling to figure out how they're going to pay their bills in the midst of this crisis, it's our public schools who could stand to suffer the most. And so we need to be fighting uh, in the short term for additional stimulus money that goes to cities and towns. The package the House just passed includes a trillion dollars for that. We need to make sure that we're supporting our teachers. We need to move away high stakes standardized testing, particularly right now when students are learning in a range of different ways throughout this crisis. And I think we need to address the many social determinants of health that impact how a student is learning, right? Are they housing insecure? Are there mental health issues for them or for their families? Are they having food insecurity? Are they facing issues around gun safety in their home or when we're back in schools on campus? So 
uh, you know, you're right to raise the issue of college debt and higher education affordability, but there is a much bigger conversation about education that we need to have in this country. I believe the federal government uh, has an important role to play there, and I look forward to being a leader on this issue in Congress. Going back to some of your rivals uh, running for the, for the uh, districts as well, uh, two of them in particular focus on, uh, mil on the importance of military. Uh, Jake Auchincloss, who was a who is a former veteran, and Alan Casey, who has supported uh, military uh, families for a very long time. Um, obviously, military is an important uh, subject for many Massachusetts voters. Uh, some of them are also very wary of it. So, how would you uh, focus on our military as well as how we handle it in the federal government? Well, clearly, as a nation, we need to be able to defend ourselves. There's no question about that. But it is incredibly frustrating to watch this nation be able to fund defense spending or be able to fund tax breaks for corporations and billionaires when we hem and haw about whether or not we could fund the desperate needs of working families, particularly right now. Um, so I think we need to look at defense spending and how uh, we are prioritizing it, how it may be taking away from the needs of working families, how it may be taking away from our needs in education, um, in supporting uh, our huge transportation infrastructure across the country, how it may be taking away from our needs in investing in clean energy. Um, you know, we, we have put a premium perhaps in the wrong place for a long time. And that doesn't mean that it isn't important that we are able to defend ourselves as a nation. It absolutely is. Um, but I think we need to look at the ways in which we prioritize spending in this country. And that is something that I look forward to doing in Congress. Hmm. So one other thing, uh, going back to the subject of young, young people in the state, um, I believe that many young voters have become incredibly jaded uh, in the democratic process. Again, uh, very miffed about the electoral college, very upset about their voice not being heard. How do you reach out to younger voters who are, who are incredibly hard voting block to reach out to? Yeah, I, I mean, listen, it is an ongoing challenge and it's not new in this election. Uh, you know, I used to run the Young Democrats of Massachusetts. I used to be the vice president of College Democrats of Massachusetts. Obviously, this was in the Jurassic period, way back uh, when I was young enough to do that. Um, but, you know, we faced these challenges then, and I have to imagine um, that unless someone really cracks the code, it will be an ongoing concern. And part of it is just about the nature of being younger, right? You're not as settled in a community all the time. You might be moving around. That doesn't mean that the voter, that the young voter is not as committed to the issues it just means that it can be harder for a campaign to track that voter down. I mean, at the heart of all of this, I've always found is authenticity, right? And not doing something to someone, doing something with someone. Um, you know, our campaign is largely fueled by high school and college fellows um, who are doing incredible work, not just working the phones and volunteering for us, but driving the conversation, driving policy, coming up with ideas, about how our, how our campaign is run. And that's absolutely essential, particularly in these times when we need to be more creative than ever. I think when you're authentically engaging any population, not just young voters, when you are asking them, genuinely welcoming their opinions, then it makes a huge difference. But we also need to be candid that we, and I don't just mean campaigns, I mean the entire process of civic engagement, 
um, has huge structural inequities in it that negatively impact not just young people, but people of color, low-income voters. I mean, BU did a study, I want to say two or three years ago now, um, that said the number one segment of the population that shows up at community meetings at night, you know, your planning board meeting, your select board meeting, older white men, right? And, and so their voices are being disproportionately heard when leaders are making decisions. Um, and that falls all the way through um, throughout the entire political process. When you look at elections, you know, when we have campaign events, are we making sure that we're offering translation? Are we making sure that we're offering on-site childcare? One of the things that's come uh, of this crisis is that we've all gotten really fluent really quickly in using technology to communicate. That's one way to create opportunities for young people and all sorts of other voters um, to engage in a process in a way that people, I think, have been reticent about before. Um, but quite frankly, if you don't have young voters at the center of the work that you're doing, if you don't have young voters at the center of your you know, policy drafting process, at the center of your outreach efforts, it is something that you are doing to a voter as opposed to with and for them. And that's something, um, a mistake that we are working very hard to not make on this campaign. Young voters are, are front and center for us. Uh, and they're helping us lead the way. Well, that is incredibly thoughtful that you will take into consideration for any young voter. I would like to thank you once again for coming on to the show. Uh, this is Jesse Mermel, a candidate running for Massachusetts 4th District. Uh, any final words you would like to say before we sign off? I, I appreciate the time, and I hope everyone's staying safe and healthy during these uh, strange, strange days. And I hope folks will make sure to make a point of voting either by mail or in person. We'll see how, uh, how it goes on September 1st. We will see indeed. Thank you, for all, thank you all for listening to WCCS. I'm Adam Bass, signing off. All right. Hold on one second. And...